0: The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by CBS All Access and The Good Fight,
1: Season 3. The Good Fight is a fantastic TV show, and you should definitely be watching it. But if you haven't yet, you can start streaming on CBS All Access and watch Seasons 1 and 2. Seasons 1 and 2, I can tell you personally, are fantastic. I love them. And you can now watch all three seasons with a free trial to CBS All Access. It's available to our West Wing Weekly listeners at cbs.com slash westwing.
0: The incomparable Christine Baranski is back in the lead role of Diane Lockhart.
1: The cast on the show is incredible, and Michael Sheen joins the cast this season. It's a legal drama, but it really lives in the political world. And if you are a fan of the West Wing, I think you'll really love The Good Fight. Even if you haven't seen The Good Wife, I think you can just jump right in on uh, season one of The Good Fight and enjoy it from the get-go.
0: Yeah, I was wondering, given the setting, whether your offer of a free
1: trial was a play on words. I didn't think of it, but now, yes, I will retroactively say it was.
0: Boom, retcon.
1: Go to cbs.com slash West to redeem a free trial to CBS All Access so you can watch the new season now streaming exclusively on CBS All Access.
0: That's cbs.com slash West Hi-ho! You're listening to the West Wing Weekly. I'm Joshua Molina.
1: And I'm Rishi K. Sherway. Today, we're talking about Season 6, Episode 12. It's called 365 Days. Or as I like to call it, I said, let Bartlett be Bartlett. Did anyone even hear me? Ah, ah, That's good. That's the synopsis
0: right there. That's a (laughs) renopsis. It first aired on January 19th, 2005. It was written by Mark Goffman. It was directed by Andrew Bernstein. Andrew Bernstein, who worked for a long time as an AD on the show, and steps up here and directs an episode. He would later hire me for the episode of Psych, Dulé Hill's show that I was on. And that was very nice of him.
1: Was he directing that episode? Yes. And as the director, he got to hire you?
0: Um, Well, I guess he was involved. I'm sure knowing Dulé and I think I knew James Roday already. I had some friends. I was stacked. I had an inside track. Yeah, But uh, I always assume, even though it's usually the producers of a show and the casting director and the people involved in a show that are kind of more important than that episode's director, that the director usually has some say or, you know, casting is run by him. So at least Andrew Bernstein didn't say, he's difficult to work with. I know (laughs) him from the West
1: Wing. Do not hire this man. He kept that part to himself. Exactly. Thoughts, not words. Let me give you my synopsis. It's the day after the president's final State of the Union address. It was a hit, but Toby isn't fooled by his own writing. And neither is Leo, who comes back and tries to take a bird's eye look at what's left to be done with the scant year left in the Bartlett presidency. But Leo's in an odd spot, with other staffers switching between respectful deference towards him and rushing off to do important pressing work that doesn't involve him. Kate deals with a crisis in Bolivia where the U.S. is seen to be interfering with elections that maybe they are and it escalates into a hostage situation. Charlie tries to find a sexy way to talk about the earned income tax credit, and Annabeth helps the First Lady with an event by finding a sexy way to talk about NASCAR. No Josh, no Donna, and no Matt Santos in this one.
0: You might have come across writer Mark Goffman's name recently because he's one of the executive producers of The Umbrella Academy, a new series on Netflix.
1: Which also features Lauren Schmidt-Hissrich, another West Wing friend and West Wing writer, as one of its writers.
0: There we go, another example of people continuing to work together. It is a truism, but uh, only because it's true, that you should treat people well on your way coming up, probably in any business, but particularly, I think, in showbiz, because you never know whether this AD or even PA, and I've had this happen, a production assistant later hired me when he was directing an episode of something. It's like there's so much volatility in the quote-unquote ladder of showbiz that, I mean, you should treat people well, Anyway, just out of being a decent person and not an all. But in Hollywood, you never know when that person that you think works
1: for you is going to be in a position to hire you three weeks later. I do like how much overlap there is post West Wing between West Wing people. Mm-hmm. There's always a, an outstretched feather. Yeah,
0: that's right. Like the wing of a California condor, it encompasses much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hi ho. <laughs>
1: You weren't listening when I did my synopsis synopsis.
0: Actually, I did listen, and the thought that hit me was that that synopsis sounds better than the episode I watched. Oh, no. Not that I, I don't hate the episode, and I think it's well written, and I think it's very well directed. I kept thinking as I watched, there's not a lot of meat on the bones. The bones are there for a decent story. What's happening in Bolivia could be super compelling and exciting, but it sort of happens off screen, and it's not of primary importance. The earned income tax credit could be a fertile topic to really dig in but as I was watching I kept you know at first I was thinking I should really learn a lot about this and as I watched I was like "Nah, it's not really that important to this episode Hmm. in its way Hmm. The, the the actual substance of it kind of not that vital to the episode and then what I was most sort of struck by and moved by is Leo's story and his return But even that sort of felt a little bit sapped of energy, which it sort of is by its nature. He's kind of this older now sort of infirm guy. His breathing is noticeable and labored. I mean, it's the thing that really moved me about the episode, I guess is what I'm saying, is it feels to me like maybe the underpinning of the entire series, if you had to pick one thing or focus on one area, was the friendship between these two men, President Bartlett and Leo. And it is in a sad, bad place. And Leo returning to his old stomping ground is kind of, uh, you know, a little bit like a dinosaur and he's out of place. And Yeah that affected me. It's kind of a bummer to watch. So part of what I'm saying is uh, maybe about not loving the episode is just that it was effective. And and what it's trying to affect is a feeling of just great sadness and regret and uh, pity. It's a rough one to watch.
1: It is. Yeah. I think you're right. The episode is effective, in um, portraying a situation where people feel frustrated and a little bit like they've lost their compass. And Leo's there trying to find it again. But in order to establish that story, you have to really drive home how ineffective things have been. Right. But it did feel so much like, let Bartlett be Bartlett. But that was in season one, and this is in season six. The difference is really significant. In one, it's like, hey, we're just getting started. What do you want to do? Okay, let's make this count. And here it's like, hey, we're almost at the end. Didn't really do that much. Didn't accomplish so many of the lofty goals that we had set out for. And now we've only got a year left. Let's make it count. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly the fiery rhetoric that I think we kind of want.
0: Although, you know, when Leo finally has it out with the president over their sad managed meals. Yeah. He has some fire in him, and what he has to say is valid. I mean, the beauty of being a lame duck is you got nothing left to lose anymore, and you still got a year here. I get, you know, that's not the episode they were trying to make, but I kind of wish that they had backed that scene up so that we could have seen at some point in this episode what the response is going to be to that. Yeah. Otherwise, it, it felt like a, lot, a long, slow kind of buildup to this. So it just wasn't a very active episode yeah he's not really sure what his purpose there is everyone's kind of dancing around him because they kind of seem to feel sorry for him there's a lot of forlorn looks at him kind of behind his back as people exit scenes with him like oh there's a lot of oh leo are you sure okay Mm, no i'll come to you are you sure you know it's just a lot of pussyfooting around him and it was uh it made for a hard a difficult 45 minutes
1: yeah You know, there are examples of presidents who had great final years, you know, presidents who took big swings in what could be considered, you know, their lame duck era. Hit me with one. Teddy Roosevelt, maybe. George Washington, maybe. FDR, I think, Ronald Reagan. And if you look at some of the economic outcomes from Bill Clinton, maybe Bill Clinton, I mean, it's a tough time, but it's not to say that you can't affect change even at that point in your administration.
0: So the Roosevelt's, they were closers.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yes. I mean, FDR died in office, but still.
0: Well, that's a strong statement.
1: It's a strong goodbye.
0: Yeah. Hashtag finish strong. (laughs) My wife and I say that to each other a lot.
1: You say hashtag finish strong to each other?
0: Usually we don't say hashtag, but on occasion we thread that in there (laughs) because we, we, we recognize that the phrase finish strong... Is uh, very hashtaggy, so it's it's said with a modicum of irony, mm. but it's also a way to urge each other to uh, whatever it is, finish the dishes. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was wondering. Is this the dishwashing? <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's usually very important
1: stuff. <laughs> I actually need that for when it comes to doing the dishes. For some reason, I always end up sputtering out about like eighty percent of the way through any dishwashing. I get to a certain point where I'm like, "Oh, is it not over already?" And then I just I'm like, "I'll do the rest of this later."
0: That is my approach quite literally to everything in my life. <laughs> it's why I'm, I'm ineffective as a man. Well, I shouldn't put that doesn't sound good. It's why I'm ineffective as a person. <laughs> actually, you know, I saw actually a very compelling take on this concept of finishing strong. I finished the second season of Patriot last night. Oh, you finished strong watching TV. No, that's not it. So much as there is a scene between John Tavner slash John Lakeman, and a young French girl. And he's explaining, without spoiling the series, a series that I, again, urge
1: everybody to watch. And I will second that urging. Right. I'm glad that you you watched in a short... You binged it, yes? I did. Finished wrong. That's one thing I'm really good at. Watching TV, my gosh,
0: I could win championships. Yes. If only I could monetize it. Oh, wait, we have. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a scene where he's explaining how he does... He's a you know, an undercover operative, and he sometimes has to do some very, very difficult, even physically painful things. And he explains to her and then sings a song to her about the concept of going halfway and then taking one step more. Yeah. And when you go halfway and then one step more through something difficult, it's closer to go to the other end of the task or the objective than it is to
1: go back to the beginning. And I actually actually thought I found that scene very moving. I thought it was really beautiful. I think that show is great and incredibly underrated. As do I. I'll tell you what was what I found the most moving in this episode was the scene between Will and Leo when he finally talks about his reasons why he went with Russell in a new way. You know, we'd heard the sort of pragmatic reasons, the chance to do something with a potential future president and make his mark early. And I think a lot of people maybe found that unsatisfying personally, it made a lot of sense to me, even if people were disappointed at some level of, oh, this guy's left our team. But here, we really hear him explain that his reasoning actually is an extension of the love, you know, this feeling of betrayal or something. It's actually not a betrayal. Again, the compass that he was following was one that he thought was set out by the president and Leo.
0: Yeah. I feel like it's a little bit of, they're trying to do a little bit of character rehab for Will here in that
1: scene. (laughs) The whole scene is great, but Will says this,
0: The truth is, and I'm not sure I ever even realized this before now, I've spent the last year and a half looking for what you saw in him. You and the president, when you gave him this job. You picked Russell, him, to serve as VP to a president with a serious health condition. You were aware you were picking a potential successor. On some level, I've just trusted that and assumed I'd eventually discover what you knew then.
1: I thought, by addressing Leo, in some ways the character is addressing the writers. He's like, you folks wrote me into this plot corner, and now we have to figure out a characterological underpinning for it that makes sense, given that this is a smart, good person who we came to really love in season four.
0: Yes, I think you're right. I think it is a little bit of that. And I wrote, uh, in capital letters, "cop out," (laughs) although I (laughs) like the scene very much, only in that there was no response to the following quote from Will. Tell me what it was. We'll compare notes. I know. doesn't work like that. He's my guy. I have to figure him out on my own. I wrote Cop Out because, one, I think these two guys could have a real conversation. I think Leo would have a response to what Will has asked. What did you see in him? I don't think, you know, Leo would just sort of gaze at him and Will would be like, I get it. I have to figure out why I fell in love with him. You know, I feel like there would have been an actual answer. There would have been a real conversation. I don't think he would have said it doesn't work like this. I think he would have said, well, this is politics. So can you talk to me about why... This was your choice? Like, I'm not going to leave the room until we actually have a conversation.
1: Oh, I actually liked it. I didn't think that part was a cop-out because I liked how it left Will with the chance to actually go on thinking that there is something for him to find. Because I think what Leo knows and what we know is there isn't some hidden depth or some, like, actual quality to him that they liked. It was that we were in the throes of season five doldrums. And in the darkest parts of the series, you know, when basically the Speaker of the House dictated mm-hmm. a defeat to the Bartlett administration and because of, and after Zoe's kidnapping and everything else, they just accepted it. They didn't put up a fight, and they went with the person who they thought could get confirmed. And Leo, I think, if left to have to actually answer this question, wouldn't have a good answer. He doesn't say to Will, you know what? We don't actually see anything in him. It was a political calculation, and and we just went with it. It gives Will the chance to walk out of that room with this optimism that, yeah, someday I'm gonna find it. And I like that.
0: I agree with you that Leo's answer, were it to be honest, would be along the lines of what you just articulated, but I feel like then Leah's getting let off the hook too easily. I mean, if that's his answer, then, you know, maybe Will should be working for somebody else. Like, this is high stakes and he's now running the, <laughs> this guy's campaign. Yeah. If you never thought there was anything to him, would you tell me now? <laughs> I mean, so, so, I mean, I, I, I'm not saying it's bad writing or bad for the show. I guess, I, I guess on Will's behalf, I felt like it was a <laughs> okay. cop out. Like, yes. Give the guy an answer. <laughs> maybe that's, yes. that's really what I'm reacting to. By <laughs> yeah. the way, I'm glad that you brought up this scene because as we know, I have an imperfect memory <laughs> for my past and my distant past, especially. And I really remember very well shooting this scene. I've been waiting for it. I'll see. I didn't remember exactly where it fell. I just yeah. I remembered a scene with, John Spencer in a largely empty office, in his new office. And so when we got to this, episode, I was like, oh yeah, that's what I'm remembering. And for some reason, I just have this sense of, I remember really relishing the opportunity. It's not like I have a ton of one-on-one scenes with John. Yeah, I don't know if I have any others and nothing comes to mind immediately. And I remember relishing the chance, the opportunity to work with him one-on-one and also feeling like I was getting kind of a masterclass. I just remember, I remember, you know, I've admired his acting, I'm sure, since the moment I joined the cast, but there was something about working with him one-on-one, the simplicity and the honesty of his approach. It was like, you know, playing tennis with someone who's better than you. It was just sort of interesting to watch. And I remember trying to soak up how he worked. And I'm glad I got that opportunity, because it would turn out to be uh, not long before we lost him.
1: Yeah. One of the reasons why I love this scene is because of this unspoken, complicated dynamic between the two of them. The two characters are in such different places emotionally in this Mm -hmm. scene. Like Will is having this like earnest moment of trying to like seek out some guidance and wisdom. And and it's sweet to hear you say that about John Spencer, because I feel like it parallels a little bit of what Will is going through where he's like, Mm. please let me like learn something from you. Give me some sense of be a mentor a little bit in this moment right my interpretation is that leo actually has this very kind of cold and pragmatic reason for going with russell he and the president and so he's out there being like i know there's some good in here and and i want you to show it to me and leo is sitting there feeling i think guilt and trying to have this sort of socratic approach to the conversation letting will sort of really do the talking And it seems like mentorship, but it's also, I think he is letting himself off the hook by not actually answering him. And so the fact that it ends with Leo never having to actually come clean and Will Mm -hmm. being like... I'll carry on, you know, it's, <laughs> I, I think it's really great. the kind of, I guess emotional discrepancy that we don't often see on this show. It's like there's a dramatic tension here that is just different. You know, I think we'd heard at one point you know that the key to the West was like you know you have two people in a room who want different things and they have to convince the other one mm-hmm. or something like that, right? I don't know, something about this particular dynamic felt unique, yeah, yeah, I agree.
0: It was uh, unfortunate, I'm not sure if it's in this scene, but uh, throughout the episode that Leo and others referred to... He's in his office watching State uh, of
2: the Unions. Unions?
0: Like, oh my God, have you guys never listened to the West Wing Weekly? (laughs) Or even your own president,
1: who would have surely corrected them. Indeed. State of the Unions. Yeah. Although, the president himself has one where, uh, at one point when he's finding out the details about the situation in Bolivia, Kate tells him that there have been contractors who were captured and the president says,
2: Captured by who? They describe themselves.
1: Yes, the I noticed that, which is surprising because he's somebody who in the series has corrected the who, whom mistake himself.
2: Why do you need a new
0: one? I'm giving mine away. To whom? Whom? To whom? He gave him the knife.
1: <laughs> I did bump on that. Okay, and while we're on the topic of language nitpicks, I've got one for you, Josh. Yes. Nitzpick. Bring it. Similar to your issue with Haponica. Oh, yes. Later in the episode, at the end, when they're being all called, they're all being called back in and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, Kate says, oh, maybe there's a stock market crash in Guyana. And what we hear is Will says,
0: Me with all my money and sapodia futures. Sapodia?
1: I don't even know what we're talking about. Well, you're supposed to be talking about a fruit, the sapodia. Oh, I don't even remember that moment. Even if you want to be really gringo about it, I think you might say sapodilla, but not sapodia.
0: Sapodia, that's pretty bad. I didn't even notice it. I must have blocked it.
1: It's just one line, but uh, yeah, so I thought maybe that was one where, you know, you saw it on the page and you said it the way you thought it might be said, and nobody stopped to say, actually... Well, that,
0: unquestionably, is what it is. Where was I being protected? What is that? Spell that word.
1: S-A-P-O-D-I-L-L-A. Sapodia. Sapodia. I don't know how I'd come up with that. Jeez. I didn't know that fruit, I thought, and then I looked it up, and it turns out I do know this fruit. I just know it by a different name. It's also called chikku, and uh, it's delicious, and... I'm going to give another endorsement here for naturals ice cream in India. Some of the best ice cream I've ever had in my life. And one of the flavors of ice cream you can get is chikku or the Sapadilla fruit. There's a chikku flavored ice cream, or you can also get it as a shake. And in fact, one of the great treats I've discovered here in LA is down in Artesia, which is like the little India. It's not in LA. It's a city to the south of L.A., and there's a sweet shop, an Indian sweet shop there, and you can get a chikku shake. It's sort of like a mango lassi in in that world. It's a milkshake, and it is so good. Anyway, I heartily endorse chikku or sapodia or sapodilla, not sapodia.
0: Sapodia. That's rough. Apologies. (laughs) Apologia.
1: (laughs) Another thing I liked in this episode was uh, learning about Kate's past a little bit.
0: Ah, we finally get to the multi-spoused Kate.
1: Yeah. It's her anniversary. I like that term. I do too. And I like this detail that she's been divorced twice. It's great. I mean, that is a really interesting detail. And then also this exchange that she has with CJ about the contractors in Bolivia.
0: These are tough guys. They can hold out to the election. You saw the video and you're being held 10 days is a long time. Have you ever been held? I've held other people. 24 hours
2: is a long time.
1: Yes, that gave me pause. That was a scary moment. I mean, we've talked about her super-spy past, mm-hmm. but it's also like the realities of her CIA super-spydom also has these darker aspects. Yes. It's not all just speaking Farsi and Chinese, you know, fluently. It's also being in a situation where they've captured people and are holding them prisoner and uh, presumably interrogating them.
0: And one can imagine a line between this professional tidbit we've learned leading also to someone having some personal uh, relationship issues. (laughs) A couple husbands, like, you can see if that's your job, might be hard to balance things on the home front.
1: Yeah, exactly. Which is I think something that's been built into so many of our characters on the show, that their real relationship is to the work. And so they don't have an opportunity emotionally to get involved with other people. But here, you know, Kate comes to us a little bit later in her career, and it gives us the chance to have that same sort of story told in a different way. She also has that same quality, but she actually has gone through two marriages to get there. Right. The situation in Bolivia by the end of the episode is not resolved at all. No. And we never come back to it. Spoiler alert, but not really, because we never come back to it later. Spoiler alert. Yeah, exactly. I thought maybe this would hang on to the next episode, you know, and they'd figure out a way to resolve the crisis. But it's just left hanging.
0: I liked the sort of turn we got in the sense of his seeming almost falsely modest about this roaring success that he's had with the speech he's written for the State of the Union. And then at the end, sort of getting called out by Leo and our realizing that, in fact, he can't take these compliments because he knows he's written something that's not worthy of the approbation
1: that he's getting for him. Yeah. I love that it, it seems like only Toby and Leo are in on it. I don't know if it's to their credit or to everyone else's discredit that they're the only ones who are sort of recognizing the hollowness of what he said and or in sort of the toothlessness, I guess. Yeah. Although
0: maybe he doesn't quite explicitly state it, I think President Bartlett knows as well. And we get a sense in that scene with him and Leo.
2: And I've never had to make a speech based on the maximum amount of time I could stand up.
0: So I think he knows he missed the mark and he knows he set the bar low.
1: Yeah. But then why? I mean, it seems sad that he knows that and yet he's buying into the accolades. That's true. But I did sort of get
0: that sense in that final scene. At one point he says, come on, we're going to do this, you know, the day after, kind of suggesting to me, implying that he knew they were going to have to have this conversation, but can you give me a couple of days to falsely enjoy <laughs> the <laughs> yeah. praise? I mean, it seems like a lessened President Bartlett, it's not the guy we voted for
1: twice. Absolutely. And I think that you made a really great metaphor, sort of connecting two different things in this episode. You talked about how there was like, not really a lot of meat on the bone. And you also talked about the contents of their dinner. You know, the president is eating this sort of like macrobiotic stuff and Leo's eating this heart healthy stuff. And essentially they're eating for their mortality's sake not eating for mm. pleasure or gusto. You know, like they don't get to... They're at a uh, subsistence level. Exactly. Yeah. And it feels like that's what they're doing with this State of the Union speech and maybe with the final year of the presidency as well. It's like, look, we wanted to do all of these things, but right now we have to just eat these vegetables in order to try and last as long as we can.
0: Although I like to think that just after the flintel, these guys are enjoying a sapodia milkshake. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think so. But the sadness of it is the fact that we have been here before. We had this exact same thing in Let Bartlett Be Bartlett. You know, Leo comes back after having an argument with the president about who's driving whom to the middle and saying everybody, hey, come on, let's get it in gear. Let's dream big. And everyone gets psyched up. And then now years later into the second term, they still feel like they haven't accomplished those things.
0: Yeah, and also, now I'm tying it all to the greater episode itself, nobody knows exactly what Leo's there for, how to use him. This is what Leo does. This yeah. is what you bring Leo back for. If yeah.
1: not this, what? Yep. He's the guy who lights the fire. <laughs> I have to say, in terms of, like, fires being lit, this did not sound like someone who just had a fire lit under them, when Will, who has the last line in the flintel, is...
0: A resurgence in civil rights activism couldn't hurt anyone.
1: We. <laughs> uh. <laughs> like oh my gosh that is one of my favorite quotes from martin luther king jr (laughs) (laughs) i can see the poster
0: oh my god that's hilarious
1: (laughs) i was a little bit disappointed in a moment where will comes in to leo's office the first time yeah the first time when he and he you know asks him what he's doing and he says he's listening to these old speeches of the inaugurals in the states of the union. And, you know, later, of course, like, he can't say one sentence without Toby being able to quote them verbatim, because he wrote most of them. I was a little bit disappointed that Will didn't recognize what it was that he was watching, listening. I mean, he's seeing it on the screen. I didn't think about that. And there was that moment when he first goes in to help Toby with speech writing. You remember he he asks for every single thing that the president has ever spoken out loud. That's true. Very good point. To try and get himself familiar with the, uh, I felt like because of that, he should know what he's already watching. And also, just because I think uh, this is one where I feel like if Aaron Sorkin were writing this episode, Will would know absolutely because he would have that speech writer's superpower, you know, where people know the exact number of words in the Gettysburg Address and they can quote long passages from speeches given by other people. Like they just know this stuff. You're right. Cold. And I felt a little sad that Will, who is, you know, Sam had said he's one of us. And, and therefore, by association, he really ought to know this stuff, too.
0: Yeah. Since you brought up the specter of the how Aaron would have done it, there were a couple other moments in this episode where I thought the exposition was a bit clunk-a-lunk. Mm. And uh, we have Kate stepping into the Oval, talking to the president and saying,
2: Well, up to now, they've been one of our most cooperative allies in the war on drugs.
0: You know, just reminding the president about Bolivia 101. It just seems like, is this really what Kate Harper would be saying to the president. Yeah. It's just like, I think it would have been more elegantly uh, shared with us or we, we would have gotten our
1: gentle lesson a little more gently. That's funny. I thought you were going to point to a different piece of clunk which I'm adopting and now stealing for my own. Toby says, first lady's going to be attending a stock car race. Annabeth says, hell yeah. Toby says, excuse me. And then Annabeth says this thing.
2: Colorful regional
0: colloquialism betokening enthusiasm of a visceral, if not rowdy variety.
1: Oof. That to me sounded like Bad West Wing satire.
0: I also I winced at that one. I didn't put that in the exposition category because right. it's not it's not really anything we need to know. Like I I you know, when exposition is clunky, it's like you can feel the steam coming out of the writer's ears. Like we've got to tell them this. Right. How do we do it without sounding like we're telling them this? That's just a nobody says that, you know, run of attempted sorkin that I also did not like.
1: Yeah. When I fell off the West Wing wagon you know, in in early season five days, it was because of moments like this where I felt like there was an attempt to make characters sound smart by putting these sort of impossible sentences in their mouths. And not impossible because of how smart the contents of it were, but smart in its decoration.
0: Right, and and it just sounds like something that's pre-written. I mean, this character's not finding these words at all. It's like, I was waiting for you to say that so I could say this thing that I wrote earlier this morning. (laughs) It just, I agree. By the way, I would say that altogether the NASCAR subplot, uh, although there were aspects of it that I enjoyed, kind of bothered me because it felt like it was sort of damning, East Coast sort of elitism at the same time that it trafficked in that. Yes. Because there clearly were these moments of busting you for like, hey, you sound like, uh," like, you know, some of it just didn't work where, you know, Annabeth, busts Toby for using the term flyover states. Right. Which Toby would not use. Or if he did use it, he wouldn't have done so unknowingly. He knows that it has a sort of nasty connotation, that you're talking about discounting the thoughts and votes and desires of a huge mass of people in the country.
2: Just make sure we avoid a flyover
0: values disaster. Sorry? People in the middle of the country who you fly over when you're trying to get to- Real cities? I can't imagine why you're worried about offending them. And he kind of laughs like, oh, you got me. But that's what flyover means. I mean, if Toby was going to use that phrase, he was doing it knowingly.
1: Right. That was the part that felt like a stretch to me.
0: Right. And then the other thing that bothered me is that Annabeth herself engages and she makes all kinds of comments that are exactly what she's busting Toby for. She talks about all the women who are going to be there or all the people who are going to see this massively popular sport. Most of them are going to be drunk. I mean, she just, she's engaging in the same sort of stereotypes about them and what they're going to be wearing, and so it's just kind of have your cake and eat it too subplot that I didn't love.
1: Hmm. I guess I thought with Annabeth, there was a little bit of, uh, nobody hits my little brother except me. That's fair. Yeah. So she takes offense at Toby saying something about NASCAR culture, but she can make all the jokes she wants.
0: I guess okay. That's a you know an apology for Annabeth, but I I'm one that I can accept. Yeah. I also looked up by the way because I remember I've always been bemused by the fact that NASCAR racing is or was the most popular sport in the country, and apparently it has had a huge drop off in both live and TV viewership in the past few years. Hmm. I mean, and that may be just be that there are a lot more choices of things to watch on television altogether. So everything's dropping off. But NASCAR TV ratings plummeting. They're down by some measures as much as 30% in the past two years. So there you have it. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting or not.
1: Yeah. One of the things that I really liked that Nick dug up for us is uh, James Buchanan's last State of the Union. Ooh, there were some rough quotations. It's pretty brutal
0: would you like to read something into the record
1: oh uh, arguably the worst president or as nick put
0: it the shittiest
1: <laughs> <laughs> i'd like that his final state of the union address is basically him saying slavery and the confederacy shrug <laughs> yeah he called the issue of slavery happily a matter of but little practical importance that was in his inaugural address so we already knew that he wasn't Going to be great. The reason why he wasn't going to get involved in the secession, he said, It is beyond the power of any president, no matter what may be his own political proclivities, to restore peace and harmony among the states. (laughs) You know, the United States of which he is president. He says, Wisely limited and restrained as is his power under our constitution and laws, he alone can accomplish but little for good or for evil on such a momentous question.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a rough message from the president of the United States. It's like, hey, don't look at me.
1: Oh, yeah. His uh, message was aim low. Hashtag aim low. Buchanan out. <laughs> uh, all these people are yelling, finish strong at him. And he <laughs> says, eh. <laughs> uh, or this. <laughs>
0: I wanted to read something in the record, too. I had a, I had a book recommendation triggered by this episode. The talk about, there's a little bit, I mean, there's talk about the CIA and there's talk between, uh, there's a little scene between Toby and CJ and they're talking about trying to figure out what those quote-unquote contractors are actually doing in Bolivia, and do they work for us, and for whom do they work, and in what capacity. And uh, Toby says, Are we at all concerned about our checkered history down there, Allende, the CIA, and Che Guevara? There's a lot to sort of question about the CIA, and there's reason for people to be uh, dubious. And I read a fantastic book called Legacy of Ashes, the History of the CIA, by Tim Weiner. It's a fantastic book, and it sort of charts the entire history of the CIA, starting with its being established in 1947, post-World War II, by Truman, and uh, looks at the tension of the dual missions of the CIA – some who led it, emphasizing espionage and acts of spying and gathering of intelligence, and uh, others who put an emphasis on covert action. It's a very eye-opening look in great detail, a fantastic read. And in addition to the morally questionable, or in fact, reprehensible things that have been done uh, by the CIA, it's also a bit of a revelation about how incompetent the CIA has been at times throughout the years. Uh, There's an excellent read. And I just
1: pulled out one little quote. And uh, as you read it, I just want to preface this for the CIA, if they're listening, that (laughs) Josh's views do not represent What's Next Productions LLC (laughs) and are solely his own. I'm good with that.
0: (laughs) The agency held the position, duly stated in a formal estimate signed by Richard Helms. Helms was the DCI under Johnson and Nixon. A formal estimate signed by Richard Helms that Latin American military juntas were good for the United States. They were the only force capable of controlling political crises. Law and order were better than the messy struggle for democracy and freedom. I thought that was an interesting
1: quote apropos of this episode. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about another thing that Toby says to Will. Toby and Will have one more lap around the fight that they keep having, about, uh, you know, Toby's mad at Will for having gone with Vice President Russell. We already know this. Yeah, this is a real retread, that moment. Yeah, but I thought there was one part that sparked something new, something that I, I liked in it. Toby's asking Will for the Vice President to go out there and be the voice of the policies that were set forth in the State of the Union. And Toby wants more from the vice president. Will says he's going to get exactly what he's going to get because then the campaign has to come first. Toby says one week in support of the man who plucked him out of obscurity. You know, they keep talking about the vice president and then uh, and then Toby does this turn at the end.
0: Rules of year? politics should be suspended. Any chance we get, it's this loyalty. The vice president has been nothing but steadfast. I wasn't talking about him.
1: And they're... In terms of the last two sentences that he said, he's accusing Will of being disloyal. And it's a clever way of putting it, but it's also not anything new. He thinks that Will's been disloyal. right? But what I liked about it was the sort of added layer. I wanted to apply that. I wasn't talking about him to even earlier in the conversation to the part where he says one week in support of the man who plucked him out of obscurity.
0: Mm. Oh, brilliant. Oh, God, you're good.
1: Wouldn't that be great if he's talking about himself and Will there?
0: That's some great writing right there. I think indeed he is. I mean, it's revealed that essentially in this conversation, he's talking about Will, not the vice president. So... Right. Ooh, nice pull.
1: And for me, that justifies this whole...
0: Revisit. Yeah, revisit. Well done. Well done. You just made me enjoy that scene more retroactively. Awesome. (laughs) I wanted to point out just a quick appearance. One of the contractors who's being held is named Creasy. And Mrs. Creasy, whom we see in a screen within a screen, was played by Ursula Burton, Yale 88, Bula Bula classmate of mine. No kidding. Yeah. Terrific uh, person and a very talented woman. She also played Hannah Smotridge-Barr on The Office in
1: six episodes. She's done all sorts of stuff. And did you get to interact with her when she filmed that part for this episode?
0: No, I watched the episode today and went, oh, Ursula Burton. So I'm, I'm sure it just happened elsewhere. She probably wasn't even on the set. It was an, you know, it was a location shot outdoors somewhere. And uh, I probably never got to see her. She <laughs> might've been at the table read and maybe I'm forgetting that she did the episode, but I don't
1: think so. Speaking of other cast members, I don't know if there are a lot of Mad Men fans who are listening to this, but if there are, I wanted to point out that Leo's intern, who we see at the end of the cold open...
2: Are we done, Mr.
1: McGarry? That actress is Alexa Alamani, who was on Mad Men for a bunch of the early episodes. She was Don Draper's secretary.
0: Ah, oh, fantastic. I had a Representative Paul Gosar I-I-I moment, if that's how you pronounce his name. <laughs> is that is that his name?
1: Uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah,
0: he's the one who said uh, essentially "liar, liar, yes. pants on fire" yeah, to Michael Cohen too. during yeah. his testimony.
1: Not only did he say it, he had made had a poster made. He had a sign, <laughs> for a giant poster made. Can you imagine
0: him at Kinko's going, "This is gonna
1: kill. Oh, Wait till I bring this thing man. out, man."
0: Oof! And uh, anyway, CJ says. Liar,
1: liar, pants on fire. Yeah, won't rhyme in Spanish. That was—I don't know if you saw the SNL cold open from uh, right after with Ben Stiller. With Ben Stiller, yeah, right after the Cohen hearing, where the section where Paul Gosar speaks—that was my favorite part of the whole thing. He was played by Kyle Mooney.
2: You didn't do this for Donald Trump. You did it for you. That's important to you to look up here and and look at the old adage that our moms taught us: Liar, liar, pants on fire. And hey, you are the liar.
0: That's been established. That's why I went to Kink Rose and I printed
2: up this in. <laughs> liar, liar, pants are fired. <laughs> Do you even know what that means? Honestly, not really. I'm having trouble understanding a lot of what you're saying.
1: <laughs> Very funny. On that note, let's take a quick break. The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Squarespace.
0: Squarespace helps you take any idea you have and turn it into a website. Maybe you blog, maybe you vlog, maybe you clog dance and (laughs) you want to share it with people. They'll help you do that.
1: Maybe you don't yet know what your idea is, but you know you want to have one. Well, you can start your Squarespace site now in preparation. That's right. They're like a creative partner. So when you're ready to launch clogvlogs.com, your vlog about clogging... (laughs) Right.
0: Check out the beautiful templates that you get uh, designed by world class designers. There's powerful e commerce functionality when you feel you're ready to sell videos of your clogging.
1: Or maybe you've designed your own specialty branded clogs that tie in with your vlogs. You know what? That's not a terrible idea. Let's talk off mic later. (laughs) All right. Clog vlog clogs coming soon. In the meantime, Head to squarespace.com slash westwing for a free trial. Get your own idea. Don't use Clog Vlogs because... That's ours. That's ours. Then when you're ready to launch, use the offer code westwing to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain like clogvlogs.com, but not that one. Like we said, that's taken.
0: That's right. Go to squarespace.com slash westwing. It's a free trial. Joshy.
1: Yes. Don't be scared.
0: Why what? Now I am. Don't be scared
1: because... There's a way for you to get exceptional home security thanks to one of our sponsors, Simply Safe. Right on. Tell me
0: about Simply Safe, Rishi.
1: It's an award winning security system that offers 24 7 protection for your entire house.
0: That's good because I don't like there to be safe zones and scary zones in my house. I want the whole thing protected.
1: Well, The Verge says this is the best home security, and it won Reader's Choice from PC Magazine.
0: I've also been told it's the two-time winner of CNET's Editor's Choice. That's true. So it's a, I guess, by pretty much unanimous acclaim, it's the company to go to for security.
1: And you can get a 60-day risk-free trial. So really, I mean, you shouldn't even be scared about trying it.
0: That's two free months of not being scared. I've never gone two months without fear.
1: <laughs> well, order now and have your home protected within a week at simplysafe.com slash westwing.
0: That's simplysafecom slash West
1: Make sure to use that URL so they know that we sent you.
0: The West Wing Weekly is sponsored by Article.
1: And I'm so happy about that, too, because I need some new furniture. And right now, Article's offering $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more.
0: And I'm going to use it. We have enjoyed the Article experience already. Some features of the Article experience. Beautiful, simply designed, modern furniture delivered to you at a great price. Fantastic customer care.
1: Right now, I'm in the market for a new lamp for my desk. Actually, it's not even my desk. It's Nick's desk when he comes over here and he works. The poor guy is sitting in the dark half the time.
0: Oh, you've promoted him to lit help. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Nice.
1: And I thought, I need a new lamp. And I thought, I'm going to get it from Article. I already know I love their stuff. It's easy to use their website. You should try it by going to article.com slash westwing. It's a
0: fabulous way to buy furniture because it's all online. They've eliminated the complex layers of traditional retail. It's much simpler. It's straight to you, and you get great prices as a result.
1: If you go to article.com slash West your discount will automatically be applied at checkout. It's article.com slash West to get $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more.
0: Also, Bomba Poofs. And now back
1: to the show. We got some thoughts on this episode from the former Deputy Secretary of State under President Obama, Tony Blinken. Before that, he was the Deputy National Security Advisor. He was Kate Harper. Mm -hmm. And I asked him a few questions about Kate Harper's story. I'm joined now by Tony Blinken, who was the former Deputy Secretary of State under President Obama. And before that, he was Deputy National Security Advisor. Thank you so much for joining us. It's
2: great to be with you.
1: Is it fair to say that Kate Harper in this episode has the job that
2: you had? Pretty much. She's the Senior National Security Council person, the National Security Advisor to the President, and uh, I was the deputy of the National Security Advisor, but she is um, pretty much filling the job that I was in.
1: Before we get into the actual episode, I also wanted to ask you about your Secretary of State title. I know that sometimes there are subdivisions of Secretary of State like regional qualifications. Did you have a particular regional focus?
2: I did not. There's a deputy who's the number two to the secretary of state. In my case, I worked for John Kerry. He was the secretary when I was deputy. And basically, I had zero depth on anything. So my responsibility was to uh, find the smartest people that we could, who actually did have real expertise, you know, in Europe, Latin America, arms control, democracy, human rights, uh, you name it, and uh, just help them get the best out of uh, themselves and their teams.
1: And did you like it that way, having a little bit of a taste of everything around the globe?
2: Oh, it's extraordinary because you really have to get your feet wet on pretty much everything that comes across uh, the transom for the United States in foreign policy, national security, international economic policy. And it's a different story every day. That's what's so great about it.
1: Hmm. And you actually advised the West Wing on episodes.
2: (laughs) You know, during the Clinton administration, when the West Wing was in its heyday, I worked for President Clinton on the National Security Council staff. And indeed, a number of us had the wonderful opportunity to occasionally advise on different storylines, uh, different episodes. It was a great experience. But one of the funniest things that happened was after one of the State of the Union addresses, there was a big party at the uh, the White House afterward after President Clinton delivered the State of the Union. And we were standing around talking and I saw someone walk behind me and I didn't get a full look at him. But I said, oh, I know that person. He's on staff, but I just can't quite place him. And then I realized it was actually Brad Whitford.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah one of the staffers.
2: So art meets life, life (laughs) meets art, exactly. I always said to Brad, he could definitely have done our jobs. I'm not sure we could do his.
1: For this episode, did Kate's storyline resonate with you?
2: Absolutely, because what's powerful in this episode, among other things, is that you're sort of minding your own business with an agenda for your day and a bunch of things that you're planning to do. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in a way that you don't expect, something happens halfway around the world. And it totally changes the trajectory of the day.
1: This storyline about Bolivia specifically, did you feel like this episode handled that kind of storyline in a plausible way?
2: Yeah, it did in a number of ways. First, when something like this happens, and in the case of this episode, ultimately Americans taken hostage, these contractors, you know, your first challenge is to just try and get the facts to figure out what's going on. And it's pretty opaque because you may not have great visibility. We had an embassy in Bolivia, and of course, in the episode. So you're trying to get information from the, the embassy and other sources, but you're really struggling, first of all, to figure out what's actually happening. And what the episode does a really good job of too is showing that even within the government, one part of the government is questioning whether they've been getting all the facts from another part of the government. They're claiming the contractors are CIA sent down to hijack the election. Are they? No, sir. What are they doing there? They're private citizens. Who happen to take camouflage gear with them on vacation? They're part of the COCA eradication effort, sir. They work for the government. And so, when they're looking at whether these contractors were just contractors, or maybe were doing something a little bit more nefarious, Mm -hmm. that's exactly, you know, the kind of question you're asking internally, what's actually going on here? We need to know all the facts before we start trying to resolve the situation.
1: And what was the likelihood when you were in a situation like that, that you would be able to get all the facts, especially if there was something nefarious happening?
2: Well, I can only speak to the administrations that I worked in. And I think I feel pretty confident in saying that we would get all the facts and we get them right away. This wasn't, you know, you wouldn't have a case of the right hand keeping something from the extreme right hand or the left hand keeping something from the extreme left hand. But uh, you always want to make sure that there isn't something going on that you just weren't aware of and someone forgot to tell you make sure that you're ducks in a row before you actually launch whatever it is you're going to do.
1: I think you may have fallen from my trap, which is admitting that there were nefarious things going on at some times.
2: (laughs) Well, again, in our administration, I don't think there were. But, um, you know, there's a long history in Latin America. The episode touches on this very effectively. Yeah. Of American intervention, trying to swing elections in one way or another, make sure that the person that we like came out on top or the person we didn't like didn't. And that's a history that thankfully has mostly come to an end. But it's something that still resonates powerfully in uh, Latin America, and we're seeing it today with the crisis in Venezuela. That's the other thing I like so much about this episode. It's remarkably prescient, both in, in sort of imagining something like what's uh, happened since in Venezuela. It's also incredibly prescient because the storyline revolves around contractors who are working in Bolivia to eradicate uh, the drug crop. and you know, we had really interesting challenges arise over the use of contractors in other parts of the world later on, particularly in Iraq. And this episode, I think, foreshadows a lot of those questions.
1: And so did you ever touch on something like that? Contractors or really any kind of activity about eradicating
2: crops? Yeah, in two ways. Actually, when I was deputy secretary of state, I was down in Colombia. This is a few years ago Mm -hmm. when the Colombian government decided that it would stop using aerial eradication. And particularly, there was a chemical being used in aerial eradication that they had concerns might be carcinogenic, Mm -hmm. although the World Health Organization said it wasn't. There was a bit of a friendly argument back and forth between our governments about whether they should uh, stop eradication through the air. But ultimately, close partner, sovereign government, good ally, it was their decision, not ours. I think in decades past, that might've come out a different way. The American government might've uh, used a much heavier hand to say, actually, no, you've got to keep doing this. So <laughs> I had that uh, direct experience. And then with contractors, you know, throughout the course of the war in Iraq, contractors played an, an increasingly large role mm-hmm. uh, in Iraq, also in Afghanistan, in some cases performing truly heroic work, but there were also problems with um, real excesses by contractors, including human rights violations. So this is something that we were constantly struggling with in balancing. You know, there's a a really useful role for them, but if they start to take over your um, defense responsibilities and security responsibilities and are not answerable in the same way that someone wearing an American uniform is, you may have a problem. If you
1: can be candid about this, do you think that there are levels of secrecy in terms of how people are hired and nested companies underneath the umbrella of the CIA somewhere that are so sort of deeply intertwined within a complicated knot that it would actually be impossible, you know, by design for you to fully trace it back?
2: Look, I, you know, in my experience, I'm not big on conspiracy theories. I think that most of the bad things that happen in government are just done because people make dumb mistakes, not because they have a malicious uh, agenda. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe that's changed, but (laughs) at least in the administrations that I worked in, usually it was uh, not malfeasance, it was nonfeasance, someone just getting something wrong. And conspiracy theories of that kind always struck me as mostly absurd because so many people would typically have to be in on them that uh, it just didn't hold up. That said, here's what does happen. You have people who are lifelong bureaucrats in government, and I use bureaucrats not in a pejorative sense, just their job. They stay, administrations come and go, new political appointees come in, and then they leave. They may not know in detail what's going on, even in the agencies that they're working in, and in some cases, even in the agencies that they run. That's really more what happens than, than anything else. You have to know to ask the right question and make sure that things are being done the right way transparently with the proper vetting with the proper procedures and uh, you know again if you don't ask then business may continue as usual and it's only when something bad happens and something blows up that you realize oh I really should have asked the question
1: that's one of the things that struck me in in this episode you know we're in the Oval Office and there's some question that needs to be answered about whether or not these contractors were actually working for the government or not
2: That's exactly right. And it's a really good illustration of the fact that, again, if you come in as an administration, even in the case of the Bartlett administration, I guess in its last year at this point, there's still things that you kind of take for granted and don't even think to question. And then when there's an actual crisis, it dawns on you, gee, I would better ask, I would better make sure.
1: One thing that's kind of crazy is how casually I think they talk about this history of American interference
2: in foreign elections. Well, you know, look, it's a long and very unfortunate history. Now, in fairness, much of it was in the context of the Cold War, and there was a perception that uh, if we didn't have friendly governments, especially in, um, in our own neighborhood, mm-hmm. in Latin America, that would come to bite us. But uh, we, of course, did things that denied countries, denied people the representatives of their own choosing. And that ultimately did tremendous damage to our, our reputation and our image. And I think as a result, did damage to our interests because uh, the people saw the United States uh, not uh, as a friend, partner and ally, but as someone who was bigfooting their own rights and their own uh, will and their own interests. Again, thankfully, that's not been the story of the last 20 years or so. And there's been a dramatic change in the relationship between the United States and our, our neighbors in Latin America. It's one reason why it's really important that we handle the the crisis in Venezuela in the right way, not the wrong way, to make sure that whatever decisions are made reflect the will and the decisions of the Venezuelan people, not decisions that, uh, that we make for them.
1: Hmm. But memories are long. And so do you think that there is some sense in places in Latin America where they look at the results of our most recent presidential election and think that there's some kind of karmic retribution at work?
2: <laughs> You're right. Memories are long. And it's funny because I think, you know, Americans— tend not to think in the same way, which is to say, we tend to be focused on tomorrow. We're not so big on history.
1: Mm. You talked about how some of the bureaucrats do last for multiple administrations, which means that they could cross parties and their ideologies might be at times in accordance or in conflict with people who are in power. At the end of this episode, when Leo's got everybody revved up, he asks everyone what they want to do and Kate says,
0: New approach to Latin
2: America.
1: We never actually come back to the storyline in Bolivia in the series again. Mm. So let's just say they do formulate a a new approach to Latin America in that final year of the administration, and then people have to carry it out. Were you ever a part of that kind of seismic shift in policy towards a geographic region where you say, okay, we're going to undo everything that came before? And what was that like, if if so?
2: So most of the time, there is evolution, not revolution, in American foreign policy, but Here's one example where we did make a significant change, and that was in uh, the way we dealt with two countries, Iran and Cuba. In the case of Iran, we, of course, spent a lot of time and effort negotiating an agreement with Iran on dealing with this nuclear program. Mm-hmm. And I think this was one of the greatest achievements of the Obama administration. Obviously, President Trump didn't feel the same way and threw it out, which I, I think was a huge mistake. But that was a pretty significant uh, revisiting of the way we would deal with um, this problem posed by Iran and its nuclear program.
1: Which would you think was the more dramatic shift, the Obama administration decision to try and negotiate and establish some kind of relationship or the Trump administration's decision to completely undo it?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, you know, and I think implicit in your question, in a sense, is actually my answer, which would be the Trump administration, because despite the fact that this agreement was extraordinary and hadn't been done before, There have been efforts to engage Iran on its nuclear program diplomatically in the past, including by the Bush administration Hmm. and certainly by the Europeans. So it wasn't like we were doing this totally from scratch uh, and it wasn't totally novel. We succeeded where others hadn't been able to. I think the the wholesale rejection of that agreement and tearing up something that um, had just been achieved in which the other party, in this case Iran, was actually making good on its commitments, hadn't violated the agreement. That was pretty revolutionary, and in a bad way, because it sent a very strong message to uh, countries around the world that the United States can't be trusted to honor the agreements it signs. It makes it very, very hard to do diplomacy and to actually get results.
1: Yeah, there's almost like a temporal version of full faith and credit that needs to exist where administrations will recognize the agreements from other administrations so people can have some faith in them.
2: Yeah, and at the very least, again, had the Iranians been violating the agreement, then the... Trump administration would have had cause to get out of it, but they weren't. And their own intelligence agencies, our own intelligence agencies, were telling the Trump administration, no, the Iranians are actually making, there are a lot of bad things Iran's doing around the world, but one of them is not violating the agreement they signed.
1: Yeah. There's a brief mention in this episode here and there about a break in the DMZ in North Korea.
2: Okay, next
0: crisis, Korea. A three-foot hole has appeared in the DMZ fence
1: it kind of comes and goes in a way that almost feels like it's not really, I wouldn't even say it it qualifies as a storyline. It's almost like just another straw on the camel's back Mm -hmm. um, of the things that they have to deal with. Did it seem too big to be treated so lightly?
2: No, again, what I think it gets right is this sense that there is so much incoming from all directions, and you're constantly in a situation where the urgent is crowding out the important. And again, you may have this very proactive agenda of all the things you want to do, and that gets thrown out the window by the three or four things that come in out of left field that you just weren't expecting.
1: It's been a few years since you've been in the White House. You, you left uh, on January 20th, 2017. And um, I have two questions. One, how is retirement treating you? And <laughs> a related question, do you feel the itch to get
2: back? You know, I was in government for almost 25 years. And I got to say, you know, post-government life ain't bad. <laughs> uh, you sleep longer, you exercise more, you get paid better in the private sector all sorts of things. So I can't complain. And I had a great run. But I will say, at least for me, there is nothing quite like going to work every day and having either literally or figuratively an American flag behind your back. (laughs) There's a sense of mission and a sense of purpose that you get from that, that I don't think, at least in my experience, you don't find anywhere else. And it's, again, something that I think the West Wing captures so powerfully in every single season. And I think a lot of us in those jobs, and they're, they're hard jobs, and they're demanding and there are days when you're saying to yourself, God, how much longer do I have to keep doing this? But in the same breath, you're saying to yourself, I can't imagine doing anything better.
1: Tony, thank you so much for talking to me. It's a, really a pleasure to get your perspective on this stuff. And thanks for, for taking this podcast
2: so seriously
1: as to give us such thoughtful answers.
2: Well, I love the podcast and, you know, a long time fan of the show, so it's fun to revisit it. But it was great watching the episode because, again, it was just a reminder of how good the West Wing was in capturing the reality of the experience that so many of us have had in government. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Pleasure.
0: That does it for yet another episode of the West Wing Weekly. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Margaret Miller. Thank you to Zach McNeese. Thank you to Nick Song for their skill and sweet, sweet loving.
1: <laughs> I'm Rishi K. With me, as always, has been Eye Candy, Joshua Molina. Thanks, Josh.
0: Boom. Sure. Thanks for having me.
1: If you'd like to leave a comment about this episode or look for merch or find anything else about us, go to clogvlogs.com.
0: You can follow us on all social media. You can figure out our names and the name of the show. Dick around a little and follow us. <laughs> the Western Weekly is a proud member
1: of Radiotopia, a collection of Excellent independent podcasts under one umbrella formed in partnership between PRX and Roman Mars. You can learn about all the shows at radiotopia.fm.
0: It's a big umbrella.
1: Okay. Okay. What's next? Hey, everyone. Before we go, we want to tell you about another show. It's part of Showcase, which is the Radiotopia limited series channel. It's really cool. There's all kinds of original podcasts from emerging and leading producers all around the world. And right now, there's a new one, a four part series called Space Bridge.
0: Space Bridge tells the largely forgotten saga of the late Cold War, when despair about the prospects of a nuclear conflict gripped the entire world.
1: It's a story about Soviets and Americans grasping at emerging technology through satellite and early internet space bridges that brought together citizen diplomats ranging from New Agers to tech enthusiasts to astronauts.
0: So it's not about driving from Pluto to Mars. Not this one. This is actually probably more interesting than that.
1: This podcast is about how the world changed from top-down broadcasting to the more level internet society where we now all live, for better or for worse.
0: That sounds good. Should we play a clip? This is Houston. We do have a TV picture. There are no frames. There are no boundaries. Right now on Showcase, from PRX's Radiotopia.
2: Zero, one. Two, this is Spacebridge. Three. Pavel and I are looking at each other like, I figured. well, that's it. We are we're dead.
1: The story of DIY diplomats who changed our world. I can't even
2: explain what it felt Social, like. it's possible. Technically possible. Subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode of SpaceBridge. That's at radiotopia.fm
0: slash showcase.
2: So what? So,
0: what? so why, what? Why are you insulting us again, and again, and again? So make sure to check out SpaceBridge on Showcase.
1: Just go to radiotopia.fm slash showcase, and you'll find the show. Radiotopia.